Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to this edition of This Week in Business History for June 14th. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Hey, before we get started today on our primary topic, I'd like to share some important perspective that I gained this week. A few days ago, I was chatting with a fellow entrepreneur, one that I've had the pleasure of collaborating with for several years now. Let's call her Shelly. So as she spoke about her business, Shelly shared a thought that has really stuck with me. As my friend uh, was sharing a few points about her entrepreneurial journey, she said, quote, Scott, you're a dog person, so you'll get what I'm saying here. I've been out of the crate for far too long to go back in, end quote. So if you aren't a dog person, it might would be helpful for you to know that many puppies come with a crate, and that crate is where they sleep, they learn to get housebroken, and it's where they're kept when their owners aren't home. It is exactly how it sounds, a cage of sorts that limits their ability to do as they please. So as Shelly was sharing, her crate that she'd never be able to go back to was a job, a job, working for someone else as an employee. And hey, as an entrepreneur since 2013, I get that completely. But it made me think there are lots of different types of crates to continue the metaphor, so to speak. For some folks, they have crates made of rules, regulations, lack of resources, bad bosses, or horrible relationships. Perhaps for some, their crate is their self-view and lack of confidence. And still for others, it might be a bully or another negative limiting influence that traps them from pursuing their passions. So my wish for you listening to this conversation right at this very moment is simple but genuine. I hope that everyone has the opportunity to live life uncrated. But it all starts with a bold first step to be honest with yourself so you can define what your own unique crate is. On this week in business history today, we're examining three moments in time that sped up society in some way, shape, or form. We'll be diving into three developments that powered innovation in industrial enterprise, moved people and freight in an expedited fashion, allowed for bigger thrills during our precious rest and relaxation time, and laid the foundation for the digital age and more. Hey, stay tuned to find out what I'm talking about. And as always, thanks again for joining us right here on this episode 
of this week in business history, powered by our team here at Supply Chain Out. Diving into three ways we all moved faster in this week in business history. Let's start with a pioneer in the automotive industry. On June 16, 1903, at 9.30 a.m. in the morning, Henry Ford and 11 other stockholders gathered to all sign the paperwork, all the paperwork, needed to incorporate Ford Motor Company. What you may not know about Henry Ford, the global titan that bears his name to this day, well, that wasn't his first startup. In fact, Ford tried several times to launch a successful company that built automobiles. In fact, one of those startups was called the Henry Ford Company, which was founded on November 3rd, 1901. But a dispute with his partners would cause Henry Ford to leave the company, and he'd take his name with him as a parting gift. So his former partners at the previously named Henry Ford Company Well, their first thought was to sell everything, liquidate, and get out of the automotive industry. They brought in a local manufacturer to assess the value of the plant and equipment. That local manufacturer was Henry M. Leland, who conducted his assessment and then convinced the partners to stick with their plan. And they did just that. And Cadillac Automobile Company was born. And as we all know, Cadillac is a revered brand around the globe now, and is part of the behemoth General Motors enterprise. Of course, one of Ford's chief rivals and competitors. But back to Henry Ford and his new partners. Just a month after the company was incorporated, the first Ford car would be assembled and completed. Notice I didn't say that it rolled off the assembly line. That hadn't been invented just yet. In fact, Back when Ford Motor Company first started, only a couple of cars would be assembled each day, and they'd be assembled by hand with unique parts that were built to order by suppliers. That would change. In 1908, Ford would introduce the Model T to the world. This car was part of his vision of enabling all people to be able to afford an automobile. And about a decade after its introduction, Half of the cars across the United States were Model Ts. But to be able to handle that hockey stick growth and execute on the massive opportunity, Ford's ingenuity would be challenged. New and innovative mass production techniques would be invented and utilized in mass. They included using standardized and interchangeable parts, and they'd pay more for qualified workers. In fact, Ford introduced the $5 per day wage for eight-hour days, which was revolutionary at the time. And even bigger changes would take place in 1913. Henry Ford was inspired by employees that had visited a disassembly line at a local slaughterhouse where the animals to be butchered moved on a conveyor-like device and efficiently kept the workers at their stations. The Ford team saw a huge opportunity to apply the same concept to building cars, and they introduced it to the production of the Model T on October 7, 1913, at the Highland Park Ford plant in Highland Park, Michigan. Soon enough, as the assembly line continued to be refined and improved, a car would be made every 
three minutes. Interestingly enough, paint became an issue and the color known as Japan Black would be the only color that would dry fast enough in the needed time frame. That prompted Henry Ford to famously say, quote, any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants, so long as it is black, end quote. Henry Ford would be a pioneer in many ways, both in the automotive sector and beyond. But to be fair-handed about looking back at Henry Ford, two things do come to mind. His anti-Semitism has been widely reported and researched, and Ford was also known to use legal and illegal tactics in his endless fight against labor unions. Nevertheless, Ford Motor Company has grown from those early startup times to over $120 billion in revenue in 2020, easily making it one of the largest automotive companies in the world. As we dive into the second of three ways we all move faster on today's show, it's important to note all of the technology that goes into the modern automobile. In fact, we're finding that out the hard way as the shortage of computer chips and semiconductors have shut down or slowed a variety of automotive production lines around the world. It is on that note that we celebrate this particular moment in history as the first commercially produced electronic digital computer was dedicated on June 14, 1951. It was called the UNIVAC. That is an acronym made from the phrase Universal Automatic Computer. The New York Times called it, quote, an eight-foot-tall mathematical genius, end quote. Its predecessor was known as ENIAC, whose development was sponsored by the U.S. Army and specifically the Army's Ordnance Department. They were looking for a better and more efficient way of figuring out artillery firing tables. The success of the ENIAC prompted its inventors, Presper Eckert and John Mockley, to form their own business and build the UNIVAC. The rookie entrepreneurs struggled, mainly at running the business, so they sold out to Remington Rand in 1950, but they kept working on the development of UNIVAC, just under a different flag, and they successfully delivered the first one in 1951 to the U.S. Census Bureau. So how about these specs? It weighed 16,000 pounds. It used 5,000 vacuum tubes, and it could perform about 1,000 calculations per second. So to give that a little bit of perspective, here recently computers, for every gigahertz that they have in their processor, they can do about 1 million operations per 1,000th of a second. Now, the U.S. Census Bureau used the UNIVAC in part to replace technology that had been developed to use for the 1890 census. Did you hear that? The U.S. Census Bureau in 1951 was still using an electric counting machine that was introduced 60 years prior. Wow. But in a feat that would make Nate Silver and his 538 firm jealous, UNIVAC made an early name for itself on November 4, 1952. After only a handful of the votes had been gathered from across the country, UNIVAC correctly predicted that Dwight D. Eisenhower would win the U.S. presidential election in a landslide. This was a very unpopular 
unexpected outcome at the time. But that prediction is exactly what happened. The UNIVAC played a very important role in the overall progression of computers indeed. Back then, Alan Scares with Remington Rand would tell Time Magazine the following when asked about the rollout of the new UNIVAC. Quote, history has demonstrated that there is an ultimate good in every new tool. The acceptance is gradual as the new tool proves its worth. It has never occurred as a sudden change. End quote. The U.S. Census Bureau put the UNIVAC through the rigors as it tested the new computer, and it passed all the tests. The UNIVAC would perform well for the organization, but it would be replaced only 12 years later and donated to the Smithsonian. The New York Times would cover the end of the UNIVAC's time and would run a headline that read, Automation Claims Another Job. On a more serious note, I sure do find it absolutely amazing to think about the sheer power of a handheld smart device these days and comparing it with those early computers that took up rooms and offices just to do a fraction of the work. The rate of innovation is utterly remarkable. You know, looking back, I took an after-school class on computer programming in the early 80s at Aiken Elementary School when I was probably, I don't know, third or fourth grade. I recall first learning about ENIAC and UNIVAC in those classes, and very little programming though. Later, as I started college, I initially chose computer science, but I changed majors as I painfully learned that computer programming was just not my calling. Thankfully, there are far smarter engineers, inventors, and technologists that make up the electronics industry, and all have enabled many around the world to live better, more convenient lives, since the introduction of the first computer. Before we tackle our last item here on This Week in Business History, I need to ask for a favor from you, our dear and highly valued listener. Hey, one of the ways that we get the word out on our podcast is through your reviews on Apple Podcasts or your player of choice. So if you take a minute out of your really busy week and give us a review, hey, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much for your continued support and listenership. Okay, down the home stretch we come. So I'm going to wrap on a lighter note here today. Previous guest host and friend Nick Rumor asked yesterday on LinkedIn, how are folks spending their weekend and their assumed downtime? Nick received a ton of answers. And perhaps if we were in the pre-pandemic times, one of those answers might would be riding roller coasters at a theme park. I don't know about you, but growing up, being only a couple hours away from Six Flags in Atlanta or Carowinds near Charlotte, those theme parks played big roles in my childhood. Of course, the Mac Daddy of them all would venture to Walt Disney World on one trip as a kid. But while all these special places, big and small, offer a wide variety of unique appeal, there is one common theme to just about every self-respecting theme park. Roller coasters. So the final item of our list of three ways we all move faster here today is an important one. It's a tip of the hat to the roller coaster. On June 16, 1884, the Switchback Railway opened at Coney Island 
in Brooklyn, New York. It would claim its place in American and thrill ride history as being the first roller coaster in the U.S. The first roller coaster in the world had already opened about 60 years prior in Paris. The switchback railway at Coney Island was invented by Lamarcus Thompson. It'd be 600 feet long and reached a peak speed of six miles per hour. Okay, less thrill and more ride perhaps. It was a one minute ride that cost passengers five cents to ride. And it became so popular that the switchback railway was generating an average of 600 bucks per day for Coney Island. And it paid for itself after just three weeks of being in use. LaMarcus Thompson would go on to create and be a part of a wide variety of theme park projects and would earn the nicknames the father of the American roller coaster and the father of the gravity ride. The ensuing decades would see the Great Depression and World War II, which both would certainly dampen Americans' interest and budget for theme parks. But in 1955, Disneyland opened in California, and with it, a new golden age of theme parks and, of course, their critical modernization. But what about you? Are you a big fan of roller coasters and theme parks? Write us and share your favorite experiences. My last couple of rides were part of a family trip back in 2019 down to Disney World, Space Mountain, Aerosmith's Rock and Roller Coaster, and the Tower of Terror were all part of my thrills. I don't think I'll ever be riding the Tower of Terror again, and especially not with my kids. There's a, a story there that I'll have to share on a later episode. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. We focus today on three big innovations that moved us all faster and forward. Big thanks to you, our listener, for tuning into the show here today and each week. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.